you for that Sijin song, a simple three-word question that takes in everything, though, doesn't it? Because when you ask the question, are you saved, and you boil life down to that, it also is a question about your view of God, your view of Jesus Christ, your view of the nature of what it means to be a human being, and it also means the acceptance of, of what God has done through Christ in order to bring about an end that he always had in mind before he created us. That question, are you saved, it sounds like a, a way to reduce life to a simplicity, but it's really just a simple way to ask about how you understand the purpose of the universe how it came into existence, and of, and of your place and my place as human beings in it. What we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians 15 has challenged us to, to think about all of this because while this, the information in this chapter does play a, a, a role, of course, in, in the arguments and errors that Paul is trying to straighten out within the Corinthian congregation. In this little section of scripture, everything is here. For we cannot think about 1 Corinthians 15 without thinking about man as a sinner and how we came to be sinners. And we cannot think about the resurrection without thinking about how it is that we came to suffer death? Why is it that we know that we will die? Where did that come from? Why is that such a natural part of human life? And to think about the origins of death also challenges us to think about how we could even possibly come to have life after death. And Paul has given us a first Adam, and he's given us a second Adam. In this little section, we also are challenged to think about the person of God, God's person, God's power, God's plan. Because to think about the resurrection isn't just to isolate ourselves to thinking about this life, for the resurrection of Jesus also has something to do with the establishment of a kingdom of God. There will, there will come a time when all of the enemies of God are made subject to Jesus. And when Jesus himself will then turn everything back over to the Father. So... Whatever it is that we're a part of here that includes our death and whatever it is that God has done in order to reverse the effects of death, it's not just about us having life again. It's about God being all in all. It's about Jesus ruling over everything and over everyone including you and me. We can't just isolate then the message of the resurrection to this life only because the message of the resurrection has something to do beyond this life. 
this little section has given us the person and work of Christ, the evidence for Christianity, the gospel message and its truthfulness, all hinges on what? Is Jesus still in the ground somewhere? Or did he come out? And when he came out, what was he like? Why did he come out of the grave? What was he like when he came out of the grave? And what does that mean for God's long-term purpose of having a kingdom that he rules over? We're challenged to think about all of that here. We're challenged to think about the content of the gospel. What is this that you and I have heard and that we believe? It's not just a message of God's love, but a message of God's work through Christ that includes Jesus suffering, dying, and three days later being alive. And if that's not true, that is, if that last part isn't true, then neither are the other two parts of that relevant to anyone, nor is it true. The lives we live as we await the future, the fulfillment of God's ultimate plan, that is all wrapped up in the message of the resurrection. So... We've been challenged to think about everything, and we're still going to be challenged to think about everything this morning. But before we get bogged down toward the end in a lot of what Paul is, is tr the points he's trying to make in a Corinthian context, we are introduced to some glorious thoughts, some glorious thoughts beginning in verse 42. So I want to read verse 42 through verse 44 for just a moment. And then I want to come back and put them in some context and then us, us think about what a wonderful message it is to think about our own resurrection. It says in verse 42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Now there's a lot going on here amongst the Corinthians. And after all these years, I think I'm just now beginning to appreciate the depth of how the errors that have arisen within the Corinthian church pervade everything, even their, the willingness of some to deny the resurrection. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But Paul's words beginning in verse 42 are, in, are an answer to an objection that he anticipates and that he expressed in verse 35. Here are the questions again in case you've forgotten. Some will say, he says, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? The Corinthians, apparently, or at least some within it, are thinking about the resurrection strictly in terms of this particular body 
that we currently occupy. And they understood from their own practices, but also just from their own observances. And we understand this too. They understood that this particular material, physical body that we currently occupy shows no signs of having any kind of longevity or eternality. They, they understood, as we understand, that eventually there's going to be death. And once death comes, death itself will work a work on this body. What lies ahead for this body? Decay. It'll turn to dust. And it will erase, as I've mentioned to you on, in two other services, it will erase all traces of our existence. Given enough time, we'll be gone, quite literally. The physical body itself will return to dust. Now, in Greco-Roman practice, there was some help toward that with a practice that's making its way back into our society, cremation. So once you light a body on fire, what's left? Well, you can collect it in an urn, but what's that? It's just dust. What, was once, what once housed you, and I want to be very careful in the language that I use, but what once housed you will simply become nothing more than dust. That's it. So some within Corinth are struggling with this idea of resurrection and as a way of mocking the whole idea, they're asking the question, right, well, okay, if there's going to be a resurrection, well, just exactly what body is that going to be? Because they seem to be thinking that in order to have a resurrection, this physical material body must be resuscitated. Thus resurrection, as they would even entertain it, must be nothing more than the resuscitation of this physical body. And if this physical body no longer exists, well how can there be a resurrection? And so Paul has argued, as we tried to look at last week, that the material world itself, the natural world, gives us evidence that this line of thinking cannot be correct. For example, you take a seed and you put it in the ground. What form that seed has when you place it in the ground is not the same form it will have when it comes out of the ground. Secondly, Paul has argued that there are different types of flesh. Now, this is very important. There are different types of flesh. Animals have a certain type of flesh. Birds have a certain type of flesh. Humans have a certain type of flesh. Even the bodies that we occupy are particularly suited to our own, well, what should we call it, our own species? to our own type. And the animals have bodies that are suited to their own type. The birds have 
flesh that's suited to their own type. We're all different. You can't think of flesh uniformly. You have to think of the body and the flesh that we have as part of serving the purpose of what God created us to be. Paul makes this point by saying in verse 38, God gives it, and here he's specifically referring to a seed, and what it comes out as, God gives it a body as it's pleased him and to each seed its own body. So each seed has its own type. There's different types of flesh. And then thirdly, Paul has argued, beginning in verse, 41 through, uh, verse 40 to verse 41, that there are different types of bodies. There are heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. And by earthly bodies, I think what Paul must have in mind is coming back to this idea of all flesh not being the same flesh. There's flesh of men, there's flesh of beasts, there's flesh of fish, there's flesh of birds, there are, there are different types of species that have different types of flesh, they have different types of bodies that are particularly suited to living on this earth. But there are also other bodies within the realm of God's creation. All Paul wants to show, I think, through these illustrations or through this evidence, all he wants to show really are two main points. Number one, the key point that with seed, what you put in the ground is not what you get out. It has one body when you put it in the ground. It has an entirely different form when it comes out. He wants to make that point because he's arguing here for what we might term and what others have termed continuity and transformation. That is, if you take a squash seed and you put that in the ground, what you're going to get out is squash or wheat, whatever you want to choose. But it goes through a transformation, but it's still squash. It's still squash. It just has a completely and entirely different form when it reaches its fruit stage. That seems to be part of what Paul wants, the part of the point that Paul wants to make. What you put in the ground is not what comes out. It's still inherently the same, but it has transformed. The other point that he wishes to introduce is that is simply this. There are different types of bodies. And those bodies are suited to the purpose and even the place where they dwell. How about I put it that way? There are different types of bodies and those bodies are suited to the purpose and place where they dwell. So now, watch what he does. Right? First of all, sowing. What you put in the ground isn't what you get out. What we've read so far, Paul comes back to that point. And he makes a comparison in verse 42 and he says, In the same manner also is the resurrection of the dead, and here it's the dead plural. So there's 
there's something that he's just said in the previous section that is now relevant to understanding the resurrection of the dead. And then he moves, and this comes across very clearly in any translation that you're looking at, it is sown in corruption. What is he talking about with the word it? Literally, it is being sown. That is, you don't bury yourself, do you? Others take care of that for you. It is being sown. What is being sown? This is, you got to follow this. You have to understand this. What is being sown? The body. This physical body that you and I now occupy, this physical body is being sown. And Paul is going to repeat that four times. It's being sown. It's being sown. It's being sown. And then you'll see he's going to say that it's sown in one way, but it's raised in an entirely different way. So let's look at this. And here's the glorious part of this. What wonderful thoughts. It is being sown in corruption. What is this body? This body is what we have to live here on earth. And because of the sin of one man, we all will die. We are people who are riddled with error. We are inherently corrupt. But what Paul has in mind here is the decay of the body. Now, I don't want to be too personal here, but we all experience it, and those of you who are young, you will too. Time isn't kind to our bodies, is it? it we don't stay young forever. The flesh, that is the physical skin, becomes leathered and worn there are things like the unpleasant things like wrinkles and other things like that that you have to live with. But there is just the physical deterioration of the body over time. You're not able to do as much as you once could do. You become tired. We're all moving toward, well, death and decay. And what Paul means here by it is being sown in corruption is he's using terminology here for the decay of the body. The body is being sown in a decayed form and it's going to further decay. Let's come back to that point I made earlier. We're all going to return to dust. This is what God told Adam in the garden. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. They're going, they may embalm your body one of these days and put it in the ground, but, but if it stays there long enough, it will eventually turn back to dust. Now here's the glorious part. That is not a problem for God. 
because it is being sown in decay. It is being raised how? Let's look at that. It is being raised in incorruption. Your body's going to be sown. Everybody's got body's going to be buried. And it's going to be in a decayed form. It's going to further decay. But when the time comes for God to raise us from the dead, we are going to be raised in an undecayed and an undecayable form. Now let's look at this. Peter writes about this just so you see this in a different place. All right, let's turn to the book of 1 Peter for a minute. Peter presents this as something glorious and I want us to think about it in a glorious way. What an amazing future lies ahead for believers in Jesus Christ and especially in these times of uncertainty that we live through we need to be reminded and uh, of the truth and we need to be anchored in the reality of what believing in Jesus Christ means. And what we have is a certainty. And I want you to notice this. Peter puts it succinctly in this way, beginning in verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living expectation, a lively hope, how? Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now what has he begotten us to? To an inheritance, what? Here's that word, incorruptible, undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. There it is. Now, I, I, want, I don't want to pick on us here for just a moment, but I want to push our thinking here. Look, what awaits us is not just living in the presence of the Father. It's not just heaven. It's not just the new Jerusalem. It's not just the new heaven and a new earth. What also awaits us is a new body. A new body. Paul nor any of the other scriptures tell us how old we're going to be that is you say well do I get to pick what age I'll look like I don't know <laughs> but I know this what awaits us is a body that will not be affected by our past decay and it will not decay from that point forward it's going to be incorruptible it's, go, it's not going to be subject to decay. But notice this. That body is going to be sown in decay. That body, not a different, not a, not a new you, but that body is going to be raised not in a state of Notice that very, very subtly maybe. It's still you. But it's you that God has made anew. 
It's a body that's defined now not by the state in which it was buried, but the state in which God brings it to life. Incorruptible. Not affected by decay. All right? Now this point is, is made again in a different way. Verse 43 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, It is being sown in dishonor. It is being raised in glory. Here the word dishonor literally means without honor or without value. The word glory is just our typical word for glory. Notice the contrast. The body is being raised in, excuse me, it is being sown in a state of what? What defines its state? It's a, it's a state of, of dishonor. And Paul probably has in mind, just like he does with corruption and decay, what Paul probably has in mind is the transition the body goes through as we live life. It's not young. It's not, it's not uh, physically fit. We live long enough. It, it becomes rather something that is, well, valueless. The physical body itself physical body itself not you as an individual but the body that's what we're focused on here and so given time we move from people who have youth and vim and vigor and power and capabilities to well the opposite of that we become people affected by the withering. And Paul's going to make this point again in a minute. We're affected by sin. and We are then subject to weakness and deterioration. So the body is sown in a rather worthless state. But it is being raised in glory. In glory. And this is not a glory that we give to it. It's not a glory because we occupy the body. It is glory because it is a body like unto Christ's that is fitted to live in the presence of God. Just to show you this in, a, in another way, all right, let's look at a couple of scriptures if you want to. Let's look at Romans chapter 8 for a minute. Again, I want you to see that this is consistent biblical teaching. And I'm just trying to, <clears throat> to keep it as simple as I can. If for nothing more than my own ability to hold things together in my mind. Because I'm not going to stand here, like I said last week, and pretend that all of this is very simple to understand. Because it isn't. Now, listen to what Paul writes. Let's begin beginning in verse 18. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, are not worthy to, to be compared with what? The glory that shall be revealed in us. Keep that in mind now, because glory is going to be very important. Verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature, that is the creation itself, 
waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Now, in case you don't remember, here's what Paul's simply saying. Even the physical creation can't wait for God to get around to sending Jesus to get us out of here. The physical creation is tired of humanity. And it is looking forward, that is the physical creation itself is looking forward to the day when Jesus comes again and there is the fulfillment, the final fulfillment of the glorification of the sons of God. Now watch this, all right? Here's how he explains this. Verse 21, because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of what? Corruption into, now notice the terms again, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption. Well, what is that? The redemption of our body. The redemption of our body. Now, there's a lot going on here. God has given us His Spirit, that Spirit in part is a down payment, Paul calls it in Ephesians chapter 1 and in 2 Corinthians, that is the gift of the Spirit of God and its dwelling presence in our lives is God's down payment guaranteeing the future redemption of the body. But as Paul writes in Romans 8 of the future redemption of the body, do you notice the repetition of that term glory or glorious that he keeps using with it? Let's skip ahead for just a moment. Let's look at what Paul goes ahead and says. Well, let's look at verse 24. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now watch this. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow... He did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, that is his son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, <clears throat> them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also, what? Glorified. 
Now, all of that is a bunch of theologically laden terminology to mean what? God's plan all along in Christ was for Christ to be the firstborn among many brethren. This is the key point. Now, do you remember what Paul has been arguing in 1 Corinthians 15? Resurrection, as we understand it, begins with Jesus. He is the firstfruits of them that slept. He Here now, he is the firstborn among many brethren. And what is, what is Paul saying? What Paul is saying is that God, from God's point of view in Christ, our glorification is already finished. The redemption of the body is so certain and us taking on the image of the resurrected Christ is so certain that from God's point of view, it can be viewed in the past tense as though it's already done. God isn't affected by time. There's not a future to him. Our future, what for us is the future glorification of the body from God's point of view is already certain and complete. But where are we going? We're going to glorification. As he says in verse 29 again of Romans 8. Whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Keep that in mind. As we now return to 1 Corinthians 15. And I do want to skip ahead for just a minute. Look at verse 49 of 1 Corinthians 15. As we have borne the image of the earthy, meaning Adam, we shall also bear what? The image of the heavenly, meaning Christ. God has predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his Son. What does he mean by that? He doesn't just mean that we live obediently to God now, although that's part of it. What he does mean in its entirety in Romans 8 is that God intended all along that we would have a body like Jesus. That's what God purposed. That's what God planned. Just to get on a soapbox for a minute. Doesn't this bring all of Christianity out of the triviality of our lives for just a moment? As though though all really God did was spend eternity past planning out the minutia of our day-to-day activities. No, we're a part of something even greater than that. The focus of God's mind isn't on what house you're going to live in and what job you're going to do. The focus on God's mind always has had something to do with Him ruling over a people. It's had something to do with Him being all in all. It's had something to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ and of the preeminence of Christ and us being a part of not only God's own glory but of Christ's preeminence. This is what this is about. It's not just about the the day-to-day activities that so engross our minds. 
And we have a tendency to want to reduce God down to our problems rather than trying to understand what God has so graciously and gloriously planned for those who believe. And he's made it available to all to believe and to be a part of. This physical body isn't it. It's going to be buried and it's going to be buried in decay. But God is going to raise it in, in a state of not being decayed. It's going to be buried in a state of, of dishonor. Marred by sin and affected by death and time. And God is going to raise that body. In the glorious state of the image of Christ. One other thing, one other place. Just so you see, in case you encounter someone who said, if you're in a conversation with someone, and someone knows enough about the Bible to say, well, that's just Paul saying that. Okay, well, let's look at 1 John for a minute. You've seen it in 1 Peter, you've seen it in Romans. 1 John chapter 3. Say, so, well, John wrote about this too. This seems to be a consistent part of the message of Christianity. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. Now notice verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There it is. What are we going to be like? We are going to be like Christ. Now be very careful. We aren't going to be God. But the body, the resurrected body Jesus has, we will have a body like that. And we will have a body like that because we will see him as he is. It has something to do, that is the body we will have has something to do with the circumstances in which we will live. Different types of bodies situated and fashioned for the purpose and place where they exist. It's in 1 John. It's in 1 Peter. It's in 1 Corinthians. Here is the truth of the word of God about what we have to look forward to. Now there's another one. We all experience this. Verse 43 again of 1 Corinthians 15. The third time Paul says that the body is sown, it is being sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Now the word weakness can mean weakness, but it's also the Greek word for just sickness. 
right? And there's really no distinction in the terminology between being sick and being weak. After all, we all, I think, understand what being sick does to us. It puts us in a weakened condition. But also, if you think about time itself, what happens to the body? The body over time, right, it, it has decay wears upon it and it goes to decay. It moves from a state of being youthful and capable of, of, of great things and it, it moves to a state of dishonor and worthlessness and then finally at the end, and from our point of view, if we're fortunate, <laughs> right, if nothing happens to disrupt the normal course of life, we eventually reach old age and then our body becomes in a very weakened condition and we die. And it's sown, it's buried in that state. It's being sown in weakness. It's going to be raised in power. And Paul must be doing something here with the word power because there has to be two sides to this. That is, in, it's raised in the power of God and in the power of Christ, which are one and the same. That same power that Christ has to rule over everything is the same power that's going to raise our body. We read that last week, Philippians chapter 3, the last verse. So it's going to be raised in the power of God, but it's also, we have to conclude, it's going to be raised as a body not weakened and not feebled and not incapable of doing anything but rather it's going to be a body that can actually function can actually function and the primary function that it will have if you think about revelation for a moment is it will have the function of being able to verbalize Thanksgiving to God. <laughs> now, I don't want to limit, to, limit it to that, all right? I'm, I don't, I, what Paul is, is doing here is it's a glorious transformation. It's buried in weakness. It's raised in power. You want to know with what body? With what body the dead are going to be raised? It's going to be an incorruptible, glorious, powerful body. That's what awaits us. What makes that possible? Us being good people? Going to church, does that somehow merit? You see, this is the weakness, and I know it's time for me to bring this to a conclusion, but just for a moment, this is the weakness, one of the key weaknesses of those who believe in works for salvation or for keeping your salvation through works. Because what you partly have to argue is that resurrection is something God owes you because you've merited your body being raised in incorruption, in glory, and in power. Really? You and I have the capacity within ourselves to achieve a state of such greatness and goodness that God must do this for us? No, there's only one person for whom that was true, and that's Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is what makes all of this possible 
and certain for us. Certain. And this is where we have to end. Whether in Romans 8, whether in 1 Peter 3, or whether in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection, this resurrection body, there's a word attached to that. It's called hope. Hope. And remember now, the New Testament word for hope is not a wish. It's not a longing. It's not a desire that may or may not come to pass. It is certainty and assurance of future good. So that we live in expectation or anticipation for when the thing which we are certain will come to pass will actually come to pass. Now, other than death, you really have no certainties in life, and the last few months have really taught us that, haven't they? Is our country a certainty? I don't know. Is life a certainty? Certainly not. Is our, is jo are our jobs certain? No. The stability of the political system, is that certain? No one would pretend that. What we hear in the news, is that certain? No. The forecasted computer models for everything, is, are, is any of that turned out to be the case? No. <laughs> what certain death... and the raising of the body for the believer. And look at how wonderful this is. Even if you suffer the ravages of plague, disease, or just time, look at what awaits the believer in Jesus Christ. And it's not because God owes it to us. It's not because, God de that, because we deserve it. But rather it's because of what God has done through the crucifixion. And most importantly, the resurrection of Jesus himself. Because that is what makes what we look forward to even possible. You cannot have future certainty without the certainty that Jesus, three days after he was crucified, rose again. This is glorious news. Something to look forward to in the depressing age in which we live. There is hope. And that hope is in Christ. Have you trusted him? Are you a believer in him? As we stand and as we sing.